You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and letting go of our hate. This is Season 2, Episode 3, Redemption in Star Wars Return of the Jedi. I'm Carrie Holmes, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hey, Carrie. I watched Return of the Jedi every day when I was six years old. It was my favorite Star Wars movie until I became an adult when Empire Strikes Back just edged it. And it's still in my top two right after Empire Strikes Back. Uh, So I'm really, really excited to talk about this today. And I have a few soapboxes, so hopefully you can help me not get on them. Well, I'm a newer, well, I've seen Star Wars a few times when I was younger, enough that re-watching them recently, I was like, okay, I have good portions of this dialogue memorized, so clearly I've seen a lot of it, but getting it more recently into my head, I enjoyed re-watching them all before Rise of Skywalker came out, so I'm still pretty fresh, but I probably have fewer deep-set opinions about it. I am not one of those Star Wars fans that seems to hate everything about Star Wars, and also, uh, just for those of you who are listening to this maybe a little bit later than February of 2020, we are under embargo to talk about the Rise of Skywalker, so we won't be doing that in this episode. And also, we really want to stick with the uh, with the story of Return of the Jedi specifically, so we don't it doesn't get um, overshadowed by any of right. the newer. But we'll movies. be drawing back from the prequels where appropriate, but mostly focusing on Return of the Jedi. But before we do that, we have a scripture quotation that I'm sure you've all heard more than once. It is the middle of the parable of the prodigal son which my father calls the parable of the loving father. We'll get into that a little bit later. It goes like this. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. Our quote from Nerd Canon comes from Star Wars Return of the Jedi, a conversation between Darth Vader and Luke. Darth Vader says, leave me. Luke says, no, you're coming with me. I can't leave you here. I've got to save you. You already have, Luke. You were right. You were right about me. Tell your sister you were right. I don't know if we want to start here, but the question always comes up, is it Anakin saying those lines of dialogue or is it Darth Vader? Are they the same person? Does it matter? And all of those things are things we're going to talk about today when we are as we're talking about redemption in Return of the Jedi. So what do you think? Is it Anakin or is it Darth Vader? I would be hesitant to draw so clear so clear a line between the two. But I guess that goes to say what I think about redemption, which is Ah. I don't see them as different people, Anakin and Darth Vader. I see Darth Vader is an extension of the worst parts of Anakin. All right. So this is a good place to start because you disagree with Obi-Wan Kenobi's force ghost because he says 
your father was seduced by the dark side of the force. He ceased to be Anakin Skywalker and became Darth Vader. When that happened, the good man who was your father was destroyed. Now, we don't have to believe Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's possible that Obi-Wan right here is just uh, rationalizing what he told Luke in the first movie, and that's always bothered me too for the same reason that you just said. Oh, the reason being that I don't think it's healthy to separate the evil version, the evil incarnation of this man from his other self. I don't think he became a totally different person. I think it's all shades of one or shades of himself. And if you want to look at the redemption of Darth Vader, you have to talk about him as a whole person. Mm -hmm. And which is here's okay. This is just my mini soapbox and I'm going to get on it for just a second so I can get it out of the way now. All right. Yeah. Preface. Um, okay. So in the special edition of return of the Jedi, they replaced the actor Sebastian Shaw and the force ghost with the actor Hayden Christensen. And that, bothered me not because I wasn't a huge fan of the prequels but because it made it seem like all of those years that this person was Darth Vader were just completely washed away and that he is now back to his like youthful self and so it it just really it I don't know if that's because I'm coming at this from a Christian perspective of redemption in which the sin that you uh, have that help that separates you from God and from other people is all part of that, which is being brought back into right relationship with God through redemption. And if we just wipe that all back away until we get to that earlier version, then what are we doing? That's that it all, it always just super bothers me about that. And I really wish that they hadn't, put Hayden Christensen into that force ghost. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, we could all quibble. I'm sure we all have a lot of opinions on the the tinkering that happened in the extended cuts and the re-releases, but that I also disagree with because you're right. It goes, it sort of negates all those years and all that pain that was caused. Um, And it comes to the question of, can this one heroic act essentially wash away all of the all of the, you know, blowing up Alderaan and all the horror that he accomplished. And I think that when people worry about that, they're kind of looking at the wrong, the wrong idea. Um, Mm. They're worrying about the wrong thing because when I was rewatching this movie and thinking about the theme of redemption, part of it was about Darth Vader, but so much more is it about Luke and Luke's hope and Luke's willingness to believe in the goodness of his father, who he only knows is Darth Vader. He only had, he's got some vague, stories about his father, Anakin, but mostly, you know, the hope comes from the idea that he could return to that, that good person, the, the um, general fighting in the Clone Wars. And I think focusing too much on this is a transactional saving Luke wipes away all of his earlier deeds is looking at the wrong question. So we, what we really should be looking at when we think about redemption here is what about Luke and Darth Vader's relationship allows Darth Vader to change his change who he is at the end there. That's a, yeah, that's, uh, or, a, that's a better question. Yeah. Um, and it, it is strange because Luke seems really sure that there's good still in Darth Vader, but I wonder where he gets that from. I wonder if, yeah, I wonder if it's a sensitivity to the, I mean, this is a force. Um, he, he's able to kind of sense 
you know, Leia, he's able to intuit that Leia is his sister. He's able, um, because he only knows one girl and obviously his sister has to be <laughs> the one woman he knows. Yeah, we haven't met um, Mon Mothma yet. She's <laughs> that's right, she comes scene. later. The next only other woman in this, um, anyway. But he, he has this force sensitivity. Um, and I wonder if he is able, either it's, bl- well, I'd say there's two, two ways. One, it's sensing it. Other is just complete blind hope, wishful thinking that ends up being true. I have a lot of disconnected thoughts and hopefully they'll all come together in a podcast in a little bit. But jumping back to the force ghost issue at the end there, the the first atrocities that Darth Vader commits, he commits while he still looks like Anakin Skywalker, which is the murder of the younglings. And that is just so unconscionably evil act uh, that it makes you just never want this person to be redeemed except of course we already know that he will be redeemed in return of the jedi when we watch revenge of the sith and i think seeing in those prequels seeing him through padme's eyes again i'm always thinking about who's the audience avatar and in the moments on mustafar when she's saying you know this isn't this isn't you she is really acting as the audience avatar in that moment or we're seeing him through her eyes that there has been a complete it feels very fast in the films i mean there's a little touch of preference for a fascist dictatorship in the second movie. But aside from that, he's not, he's not pre- performing any acts of evil until, you know, the end, the last 20, 30 minutes of revenge. And, and he looks like himself. He's wearing darker clothes and he's got kind of darker, you know, kind of red filled eyes, but for yeah, the most part, the he looks Sith eyes. Yeah, yeah. He looks like Anakin and it is disturbing. Um, well, so he does, he does slaughter all the sand people in that's attack true. of the clones because and they killed his cool mom. She just holds him and says it's going to be okay. The, the question like and the question becomes <laughs> it's coarse and it gets everywhere. Sorry. <laughs> Jeez. All right, we're not going to meme our way through this podcast. No, but maybe Twitter will be spammed later anyway. <laughs> Carry um, on. All right. Uh where was I going? Uh, when we think about the evil that is done by these characters we didn't know all of the evil things that Darth Vader had done. At the end of Return of the Jedi, just imagine it's 1983 and the only thing we have is the three movies. What do we know about Darth Vader's evil at that point? We know that he was standing by when Grand Moff Tarkin blew up Alderaan on the Death Star and that Vader sort of silently blesses that. And then in uh, then he you know fight, fights in the battle at the end of... of of Star Wars and blows up Biggs and some other folks. Then in Empire Strikes Back, he leads the assault on Hoth as part of the Empire. And then he basically just kills his own crew members for the rest of the movie. Oh gosh, yeah. Right? Kills Admiral Ozzel, he kills the other guy. And then we get him at the end where really all he's trying to do is is get Luke and bring him to the Emperor. And then in, in Return of the Jedi, the whole story is Luke trying to see the good in Darth Vader. And so in 1983, we know that he's a bad guy, but we don't really know the depths of evil that he has fallen to. And we don't get mm. that until Revenge of the Sith with the, with the destruction of the temple and the, and the killing of all the younglings. And then, of course, we have more stories of Darth Vader between Revenge of the Sith and uh, the original trilogy that have come out in comic books and books and, and, and other storytelling media. 
and and he's does does really bad stuff there he also ha- does have conflict within him during that period and it's really his pain that keeps him in the dark in the dark side not his anger uh and so i think what luke is sensing is the pain that darth vader feels and what it what really it comes down to and, and darth vader says this it's too late for me Yes, he, he thinks late. he thinks that he the, the choices he's made, the uh, all of the horrible things that he has done have, make it so he cannot take that one step he needs to uh, turn around and take one step back toward the light. It would be too pain. I mean, I'm thinking obviously about Harry Potter and the only way to undo a Horcrux is to feel remorse, and that mm. that's a process more painful sometimes than tearing the soul itself. So the journey of Darth Vader to have to. Like you said, take that first step to return is is huge and painful, and and have to face the consequences of all of those actions. Um, I think it's difficult to go back to the 1983 mindset. Uh, I was not born, but also because Darth Vader has become this mythic villain figure. That when you when I rewatched the, you know episode four, it was like, oh, he's kind of not even really in it that much. He's not this looming shadow presence like yeah. we think. Um, he's yeah, he's been so heavily marketed um, since then that and taken on this life of his own as this archetype of villainy. But he, you forget, you know, that that's all kind of happened since then. But to go back to this original and see his arc with just in the, these three movies, it is very different. And and yeah, because in the first movie, Grand Moff Tarkin is the main villain, and Darth right. Vader is like the enforcer. Yeah, he's the he's the kind of like the muscle. And then in in in, in Return of the Jedi, it's the Emperor. Mm-hmm. Is the main villain, and he's he's bad. We the Emperor's just bad. He's bad <laughs> there for is, there's no no spoilers there. Th- yeah, he's, he's bad. just bad. Th- th- there is no nobody ever thinks. I wonder if we can, you know, redeem sheep. Redeem sheep, Palpatine. <laughs> <laughs> we should get a shirt that says <laughs> redeem sheep, Palpatine. Oh um, <laughs> you know, and so, but but the Darth Vader figure is set up to be this this a character who is in conflict we just can't see it because he's got the mask on and all we hear is that ominous breathing and yet luke continues to say there is conflict in you right because i think he can sense the pain of darth vader let's pivot let's pivot for just a second to the parable of the prodigal son there are two brothers the older one and the younger one the younger one says hey dad give me my inheritance and the father says okay so the younger son takes his money goes off to a far land Gambles it away, drinks it away. I forget what else he does. He's prodigal. <laughs> the King James Version calls it riotous living. Ooh, riotous living. So he goes out and lives riotously and basically comes to the end of his bender face down in a pigsty and goes, wow, my father would even would treat his workers better than this. Oh, there's a famine in the land where he is, so he's hungry. So he says, I will go home apologize to my father and ask to work for him as a farmhand, not to return as his, as his son, but to return as a worker, just because I know he's a good boss. And when he was still far off, and this is the part that the quotation is, when he's still far off, he, his father sees him and runs towards him, and the son apologizes, and the father says, I know, I'm taking you back as a son. I'm so grateful that you returned. You were dead, and now you were alive. You were lost, and now you are found. And then there's a whole second bit with the older son being kind of What's a good phrase here? A little offended. It's not fair. It doesn't seem fair to him. 
and we can talk about that another time. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure the, that he'll come up in some other podcast. Doesn't quite fit with what we're talking yeah, about today. I'm but. a younger sibling, so I relate to the prodigal son quite a bit. <laughs> so I like your, that your father calls it the story of the, the parable of the generous, generous no, lo- father, the loving father, the loving yeah, father, or loving even father. some people say the prodigal father. That he's he's um, his love is almost excessive. Mm-hmm. His ability to forgive is excessive. Um, so the son was wasting, you know, throwing away his money and, and throwing all those living in that manner. But the father offers that generosity mm. in terms of his love. So the thing that when I was watching Return of the Jedi for this podcast, I, I kept hearing Luke and Vader calling each other father and son, mm-hmm. which is what brought me into the frame of mind of the parable of the prodigal. Because when I read that story, what I see is the relationships that continue to be reformed after they're broken at the beginning of the story. So the son goes away, basically breaking the relationship with his father and his family. And then he doesn't feel, you know, he doesn't think that he can be called a son anymore because of that. And yet his father says, this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. In the second half of the story, we see even more of that mm. because the father says, "Your brother, your brother," you know, and and the, and the older brother says, "That son of yours, <laughs> not this brother of mine, that son of yours." So there's all of these yeah. reconnections and relationships through the familial language, and Luke and Vader are doing that the whole time throughout Return of the Jedi, if you listen for it, the number of times they call each other son and father is amazing. It's actually kind of, it was disturbing for me to notice that as well, because they don't have what I think of as a you know, father-son relationship, but why, why they keep asserting this relationship, I think from Darth Vader's point, is to try to convince him, you're my son, so you're going to follow in this legacy of the dark side. And Luke reasserting, you are my father, you know, there's hope for you. There's good in you mm-hmm. that they're both trying to will into being the relationship they want. Um, and yeah. I love that you wanted to frame this in terms of the prodigal son, because in this case, the roles are reversed. Mm-hmm. Luke is the one who is far off and running to meet uh, Anakin. And is the one with compassion. It, it's mm-hmm. a, the, the scripture quotation says when, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion and compassion is the, desire to suffer along with somebody it's it's a special type of love mm-hmm. it, which is the solidarity within suffering and so when luke has compassion for darth vader what he's doing is suffer is is putting himself in a place of suffering along with his father who as we said before is in terrible pain and has been ever since he made those decisions uh, and we'll talk in a little bit about why he made those decisions as a younger man. Um, but the emperor says specifically, he, can, he knows it, says to Vader about Luke, he says, his compassion for you will be his undoing. The emperor knows, yeah, the emperor knows that Luke is feeling compassion for Vader, but the emperor sees that as a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. And what's interesting about that is I think in talking, in naming Luke's compassion, saying that Luke's compassion will bring him to you, to, to Darth. I think that starts to open some conflict. It's hard mm. to read, obviously, the, the there's no face to look at. I feel like that was the opening of a door in some ways, of just by naming that Luke has this compassion that would be willing to risk himself to come to his father. Mm-hmm. It starts to open a little bit, and it almost becomes the emperor's undoing in that way. Right, yes, yeah. And then when they do come together, when when Luke 
surrenders himself and meets up with Darth Vader, he, he says, I've accepted the truth that you were once Anakin Skywalker, my father. And that's when Vader says, that name no longer has any meaning for me. And then Luke says, it is the name of your true self, which goes to your point earlier. Yeah. You've only forgotten. I know there's good in you. I feel the conflict within you. Let go of your hate. And that's when Darth Vader says, it's too late for me. And then adds, son. Yeah. It's too late for me, son. And, and so Luke, I don't think necessarily agrees with Obi-Wan's Force Ghost about mm. that complete separation between Anakin and Darth Vader. And Luke is seeing a true self within the, 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 the pain, all of those negative emotions right. that Darth Vader is continuing to fuel his dark side powers with. You know, I'm thinking about Moana, obviously, <laughs> as I tend to do. But I'm thinking about how Darth Vader is not a name he gave himself. As we find out in the prequels, the Emperor declares, you will be called Darth Vader. And I'm you thinking about that moment. Darth Vader. There you go. Thank you for your best Sheev impression. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about that moment in Moana when Taka is transformed back into Tafidi and Moana mm. singing, um, you know, they've stolen the heart from inside of you. This is not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. And so I wonder, maybe I'm backtracking a little bit on my earlier statement about Anakin Darth Vader divide that in reclaiming his own name, his old name, and rejecting the identity of Darth Vader with what comes with this whole weighty baggage that the Emperor has kind of manipulated him into taking on. I don't think, maybe it's not a negation of all those evil actions, but it's returning to his own true name. So the question is... Why does Anakin become Darth Vader? And he is being groomed by Palpatine his entire career. Yeah, and there's possibly even a, before his yeah, life began. There's even a comic can... book that shows that, you know, that Palpatine, you know, mm -hmm. did something with the midichlorian, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Anyway, let's uh, just, just sticking <laughs> okay. in with the Revenge of the Sith, though, the reason that he is so uh, ready to dump to the dark side is because he keeps having these visions of Padme dying in childbirth. And he wants to save her. And so we get that incredible meme-worthy scene at the opera where the Empress says, have, have I ever told you the story <laughs> of Darth Plagueis the Wise? You know, that whole story. Anyway, yeah. um, but when we see that happening, we're, we're trying to think, okay, why does Anakin want this? And it's really because it's from, it's a place, it's from a place of selfishness for him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to lose Padme, not because Padme's, great but because he has been covetous of her yeah. his entire life it really is a self-centered desire mm -hmm. for him uh to save her and that's what opens himself up to the to the dark side there is jealousy for obi-wan because he thinks that he, sh that he and padme which makes that relationship makes a lot more sense than padme oh my gosh Anakin, that's by my, the way. <laughs> my head cannon okay sorry yeah. anyway i'll read my um, fan fictions later the emperor or at that point um the, the the chancellor, chancellor. gives Anakin this story. Basically, he's saying the only way to save this person that you love mm -hmm. is to give yourself over to the dark side. And then the emperor says the exact same thing to Luke. Give yourself to the dark side. It's the only right. way you can save your friends. It's the same lie he told Anakin, you know, 30, not quite 30 years ago. Uh, 20, 24 years ago, something like whatever. I don't know my, my galactic dates off the top of my head. Sure. Um, anyway, uh, but I wonder if some little bit of Darth Vader, when, he's, when the Emperor says that line, if some little 
thought pops into Darth Vader's head, which is, wow, you said that to me too, no, and it all went yeah. wrong. That doesn't work. And, and, and is that the moment where he starts to go, oh, maybe, maybe there's something here? Because when the moment comes, when he picks the emperor up and chucks him down the, the shaft, there's so much, this, this music is playing, the lightning mm-hmm. is going, and we, we hold on Darth Vader's mask right. for a long time before he yeah. actually picks up the emperor. So there's that conflict is just raging within him. And finally, he takes that step to save Luke. There's, there's a lot there about emotion. And I think, and, and, the, and the kind of paths to the dark and the light, and I wonder if that's relevant here. You mentioned Anakin's covetousness of Padme kind of being the start of his downfall. I think it gets misinterpreted that it is love that he has for that his love for her, his attachment to her is what leads to his downfall. And, and there was the Jedi always preaching non-attachment. That the idea that his love, which is actually rooted in selfishness leads to his becoming this terrible monster, but that his love for his son can be the thing that redeems him just goes, I don't know, to just show how messed up the whole dark and light binary is. I'm not really, hmm. I get, I get frustrated with um, how that's portrayed and how. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that, the, that since Disney's taken over star Wars, Disney has brought in more shades of gray into the force so we have less light and dark. And, and it was happening before Disney took over within the Clone Wars. There's some, there's some stuff there, which maybe we can get into it in a, on a later date. Rebels really dives into the, the idea okay. of gray uh, within, between the light and the dark. And then, of course, Luke in The Last Jedi has a lot to say uh, critiquing the Jedi Order. Well, I'm wondering, I found this quote when I was looking up stuff about Lucas's from his like a very original notes on the force. And I wonder if this is useful in kind of showing that Anakin's downfall was led not by his love, but by his selfishness. So Lucas says on the force, the only way to overcome the dark side is through discipline. The dark side is pleasure, temporary and easy to achieve. The light side is joy, everlasting and difficult to achieve, a great challenge must overcome laziness, give up quick pleasures, and overcome fear, which leads to hate. That, that quotation from Lucas is interesting, specifically the idea of discipline, needing discipline in order to be able to hold on to joy and not, mm-hmm. let, not, not slip into the ease of those things that lead us to the dark side, anger, fear, aggression. And I think we see that in Luke. One of the things that's most delightful to watch about this movie is Luke's kind of leveling up transformation from the very beginning. He is a whole new guy. He's not the brash, you know, mouthy teenager he was in the first one. And it's a joy to see him in control with this discipline, with the training, that he's going back to honor his word by going back to see Yoda. He's um, kind of become a complete in so many ways. And he, he does, the one moment that he loses that control is when the Emperor goads him about uh, Leia. Yeah. And that's when he picks up the lightsaber. And so we do have that, oh, save your friends, you know, attack me. The Emperor knows exactly the way to bring Luke. It, and it's that whole idea of, you know, falling into sin often is taking, is it C.S. Lewis that talks about there, there is pleasure, and then there is mm-hmm. taking those pleasures so far that they become sinful. I'm sure C.S. Lewis said something about that. <laughs> the, the, the thing I wanted to talk about with Luke is the fact that they always are talking about confronting Darth Vader 
facing Darth Vader, but not destroying or killing him. I was listening for it as I watched the movie. Yoda says, you must confront Vader. Um, Leia then says, why must you confront him later on? Interesting. Uh, Luke says, that's why I have to face him. Yeah. And then Luke later on, when they are in the throne room, he says, I will not fight you, father. Mm. And it's not until he cuts off Vader's mechanical uh, hand mm-hmm. that he, he then shuts the lightsaber off and says, hey, I'm, I am a Jedi. I have, I have faced my father. I have confronted my father. But it was never about killing Darth Vader mm-hmm. for, for Luke. It was always about confronting and isn't that what we're called to do? We're not called to destroy and to kill. We're called to confront evil. It, there's no way to destroy it. Evil is something that, that, that annihilates and pulls us away from the goodness within us. And all we can do is confront that and say no. And that's what Luke is doing in this movie. He has that incredible spirit of nonviolence Jabba's palace is a whole nother story, but when it comes to <laughs> not a lot of nonviolence there. Yeah, but when it comes to actually facing Darth Vader, he shuts his lightsaber off. He tosses it away. I learned in the course of learning um, researching for this podcast that the original title of this installment was going to be "Revenge of the Jedi," and then changing it to "Return." The idea of returning being more the central idea and saving revenge for being now you can call it "Revenge of the Sith," which is a lot more appropriate for what that that faction will do. Who do you think is the, what Jedi is returning? I think there's a nice ambiguity Mm. in the title of Return of the Jedi. I was just seeing it. Yeah, it could be Anakin. Yeah, it's the Jedi Order, yes. Although it's really just Luke and then Leia, we learn, uh, and then some some students as well later on. But um, the return of the Jedi could be the Jedi being Anakin Mm -hmm. at the very end of the film. I think the, the wisdom of Luke and the, confidence and competence that he shows in this film is a posture um, that is Christ-like in a lot of ways. Um, Trusting that if you open yourself up and offer that love, offer that compassion, people will come to you and turn to you, encouraging that change in others. And then, and and having it in this case, you know, Darth Vader does turn. We we put the cart before the horse if we start to think about God forgiving us because we uh, because we are now doing good things. Oh, sure. Or God loving us because we are now doing good things. No, no. We do good things because God loves us. And when we look at it, we look at Luke and Darth Vader. Darth Vader is able to take the step that he takes at the end of the movie because of Luke's compassion. Because Luke is stepping into the role of that of the father in the prodigal son narrative and running to meet his, this person that has fallen away um, and, and is there ready to, to receive him with open arms. And as our quotation at, uh, from Nerd Cannon states, mm. when, they're, when they finally take off Vader's mask and they have that conversation, we find out that uh, Luke doesn't think he saved him yet, right. but he has. And, and Vader says, you already have saved me. You were right about me. And I love the imagery of taking off the mask. Absolutely. Removing that persona that was placed upon him. Yeah, it's really interesting that you said earlier about uh, Vader being named by, by Palpatine. Mm-hmm. By, by Palpatine creating his apprentice. 
and it being ultimately his downfall as well, because there's things that work that he does not understand. He thinks Luke's compassion will be Luke's downfall, but it, as we've said, is his downfall because he underestimates the power that is in this, this son off, you know, in pain, kind of offering himself up almost like a sacrificial lamb mm-hmm. to the emperor and the, the movement that will happen in Anakin's heart and seeing that moment. And here now I'm falling into calling him Anakin when he's being good. Ah, uh, see, this is believing in this a binary. Is that thing. This is that binary. Believe, you know, yeah, I'm Anakin's the good Obi-Wan. one. Darth Vader's the bad one. It's it's really a challenge because that's not how. <laughs> that's People, not how not, good and bad work. Right, and it's not a, for the average person who's not committing mass genocide. Thankfully. Um, we have our darker and lighter selves, but we're not separate people. We are all one. And um, I was thinking about something that what my seminary professor said, which is that, you know, nothing, not even sin cannot be used, you know, to, as a pathway towards God. Even when we fall away from God and we break that relationship or, or harm that relationship, we can turn again in that we're never so far off that we cannot be returned. And even that time away, the time of, and maybe the regret we have for things we've done can be used to turn more towards good, more towards love. Mm-hmm. And so I don't like the idea of just totally erasing, you know, everything that happened be- right before killing the younglings up mm-hmm. till the mask coming off, you know, just doesn't happen because it's been erased. But that maybe if he had lived, there would have been something more to it than just that. I was watching a TED talk given by Brian Stevenson the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. Mm. Um, the recent movie, Just Mercy, is about him as from the book that he wrote, which I highly recommend folks reading. It's a phenomenal book. And Brian Stevenson's career has been uh, helping people who are on death row get new and fair trials. So in this TED Talk, <clears throat> Stevenson says, um, I've come to believe that you are basically, he says, you are not completely defined by the worst thing that you've ever done. If you are, a, if you have stolen something, you are not just a thief. Even if you have murdered somebody, you are not just a killer. And I and I see that in this relationship between Luke and, and Darth Vader, where Luke is able to see into Darth Vader that small sliver of self, that true self, that he mentions that is still there, even though Obi-Wan says, well, he's now, he's more machine now than man, twisted and evil. Well, Luke says, no, there's, nobody is ever wholly evil. I wonder how much of saying that he's more machine than man is Obi-Wan kind of being uncomfortable with what might be considered his own failure. Mm. Like so much of that is, is taking things in stride. Well, and of, Obi-Wan's of the reason the that he's sure. Obi-Wan's the reason he's more machine. He now had the than high man. ground. <laughs> Stop. It's really important. Stop Sorry, I can't me, not Carrie. leave it. Thank you for that that meme fest there. There, uh, there Luke, when he's talking to Obi-Wan, says there is still good in him. Uh, Obi-Wan says, You must face Darth face Darth Vader again. And that's the only time where Luke says, I can't kill my own father. When Leia asks, why must you confront him? Luke then says again, because there is good in him. I've felt it. Mm. I can save him. I can turn him back to the good side. And like you said before, Luke's kind of confidence there that that he has, it's almost like a convert's zeal here. Mm -hmm. He's still so new and fresh to this, to the light side of the force that he just feels it so powerfully within himself. And he wants it to be true for his father. 
So I think that part of that, what makes me realize is that, you know, redemption requires hope, Mm -hmm. hope from the person offering the forgiveness, offering the pathway back. The last time that he calls out for Vader when he's being, when he's being electrocuted by the force lightning, he yells, father, please help me. This is really interesting. Right before he says that, the emperor says to him, your feeble skills are no match for the dark side. I think it's really fascinating that the emperor thinks that Luke is using some sort of skill that, that the, the, the light side is as long as he could jump high enough or push something, <laughs> there's like a video game kind of quality in that line of dialogue. The emperor has no idea what Luke is using and it's not a skill. He underestimates the power that Luke has. Under, yeah, this power of compassion that Luke, again, would bring himself into this place of horrible danger like Jesus. And again, we're, we don't need to get into redemptive suffering here. That's not what we're talking about. Right. It's the logical conclusion of Luke's desire to bring his father back is needing to place himself in, this, uh, in, the, in harm's way with the emperor. And how much, this is maybe a bit of a sidebar, but how much of that do you think is it freedom to do that is the knowledge that the sort of legacy, the, the force, the jet, this force sensitivity will live on in Leia. I wonder how much of that has kind of liberated him to say this will, they will be okay. The rebels will be fine. They don't need me specifically. So I can kind of make this more greater move in a way that's a little bit more free to do than if they were every, all hope was riding on him. It's different. It's a different type of heroism than like uh, like Harry Potter, who's like the only one who could defeat Voldemort in that certain way. They don't really need Luke, and so he's able to pursue this alternative plan that is a little bit more subtle and redemptive um, than just striking a you know throwing a torpedo down a down a shaft. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The way Return of the Jedi is set up is we have that very intimate, those very intimate scenes with Luke and Darth Vader. And then we have the the forest planet with the Ewoks all running around. And then we have the big epic space battle. And they're all happening intercut with each other. And just imagine that the stuff with Luke and Darth Vader and the Emperor wasn't happening at all. Mm-hmm. We're imagining it? Yep, we're imagining it. Just Ewoks. Just Ewoks and Lando Calrissian and Wedge Antilles flying into the Death Star and blowing it up. Darth Vader and the Emperor die that way too. Exactly. The, sort of the, the, the plot of let's destroy the Death Star is completely ancillary to this to the actual story of what's going on in this movie because the the theme of this movie is all with Luke this theme of compassion bringing Darth Vader back and seeing the good in somebody who everybody else sees as holy and totally and irredeemably evil there's always someone who believes there is good in you and can redeem you and that there's always there's always a pathway back We are back with our book club, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, chapters seven, eight, and nine. Here's a quick recap. Chapter seven, Mudbloods and Murmurs. Colin Creevy knows nothing about Quidditch, which gives the author a chance to remind the reader the rules of the made-up sport as Colin chases Harry down to the pitch way too early on a Saturday morning. But the Gryffindor team can't practice because the Slytherins have taken the field and they have a special note from Snape, not to mention seven brand new Nimbus 2001s and a new seeker, Draco Malfoy, who is the poster child for bribery and nepotism. 
When Hermione points this out, Malfoy calls her a mudblood, a really foul word for someone of non-magical heritage. Ron tries to curse Draco, but his bad wand rebounds the slug-vomiting curse on Ron. The trio heads to Hagrid's where they discuss mudblood some more, and then Harry has to go serve his detention with Professor Lockhart answering his fan mail. Oh, the horror. Harry addresses envelopes for nearly four hours before he hears a mysterious and terrifying voice that seems to be coming from the walls, a voice telling him to kill. Chapter 8, The Death Day Party. Argus Filch catches Harry tracking mud into the castle from Quidditch practice, though I'm not sure how Quidditch, a sport that takes place in midair, imparts mud on the players. Good point there. Harry promises nearly headless Nick that he will attend his death day party after Nick helps Harry escape Filch's clutches. Harry, Ron, and Hermione go to the party on Halloween, where nothing of consequence happens except an introduction to a ghost named Moaning Myrtle. On their way back upstairs, Harry hears the voice again. I smell blood. Thinking it is going to kill, he rushes off with the others in hot pursuit. They find words written on the wall. The Chamber of Secrets has been opened. Enemies of the air, beware. Also, Mrs. Norris is hanging in the air, stiff as a board, dead. Draco Malfoy gloats, saying, You'll be next, mudbloods. Chapter 9, The Writing on the Wall Never mind, Mrs. Norris isn't dead. She's petrified. Lockhart knew it all along, of course. The group of teachers lets the trio go, and a few pages later, we find ourselves in Professor Binz's History of Magic class on the only day it has ever been interesting. Ever. Hermione induces the ghostly professor into telling them the legend of the Chamber of Secrets. Salazar Slytherin, one of the four founders of the school, wanted Hogwarts to be more selective in its admissions policies and only allow in students from the best, that is, pure blood, wizarding families. He left the school after having a falling out with the other teachers, but legend says he built a room that the other founders knew nothing about. A room that held a beast, a beast that one day would be released by Slytherin's heir and cleanse the school of all the students Slytherin would not have wanted. The trio head back to the scene of the crime and find a gaggle of spiders, which Ron is deathly afraid of, marching away. They're right by moaning Myrtle's bathroom, but she's not in a talking mood. Who could the heir of Slytherin be? It's gotta be Malfoy, of course. If only there were a way to make him talk. Well, how about Polyjuice Potion? That's a normal thing to do when you leave a job. <laughs> to create a... <laughs> they didn't have a leaving well policy. If they did, it would probably be do not create a murder chamber. <laughs> All, All right. right. So there's a lot of the, kind of the theme, major theme of this book being introduced for even more deeply in blood purity comes in so heavily in these chapters mm-hmm. with, mud, with Malfoy's foul slur and the really intense reaction that you get from all the the wizarding care, the wizarding born characters, because yeah, we as readers don't understand how terrible of a word this is. And it's kind of a, you don't see this reaction again in the books. Malfoy slings this word around all the time. But I remember reading this and hearing the reading the Elisa Spinnet shrieking, how Mm. dare you? And just Mm. imagining like, wow, this is a big deal. I really appreciate actually rereading this in the book because I've obviously seen this movie so many times in the movie, Hermione does know the word and she gets mm-hmm. really upset by it and she's crying in Hagrid's cabin. And I like that just, it makes sense in the mo- in the book context that she doesn't understand it. And Ron's the one who's explaining it and is kind of holding the line down of it's a really foul term. Yeah. Um, and Hermione's not really perturbed by it because she doesn't have that same baggage that it is. And 
and Hagrid's quick, you know, compliment about how she can do any magic that we throw her way is kind of uh, buoys her a bit. Yeah, it makes sense because all of the books that she has read, you know, the hundreds of books that this Mm -hmm. 12-year-old has read, why would it have that that derogatory insult in it? in those books. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it makes complete sense that she wouldn't know. And like you said, she doesn't have that visceral reaction to it. It actually reminds me of a fantastic uh, comedy special by Trevor Noah. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you've watched any of his comedy, but it's amazing. He has a really interesting, uh, he does a several minutes on the fact that growing up in South Africa, he doesn't have the that same that same baggage of the n word that it has here in the United States, and in fact, that word in one of the seven languages that he speaks in the, one of the languages of his growing up, that word actually has a very positive meaning. Hmm. Uh, just the, the actual syllables of the word, it means something else in the language, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, and and so, when Trevor Noah came to the United States, hearing that word for him. Uh, he understood what Americans meant when they said it, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't hit him with the same in that same way where it, where it would hit somebody who had grown up in the United States, an African American mm-hmm. or black person that had grown up in the United States, in mm-hmm. in which that word carries so much um, so much negative baggage when spoken by uh, by a white person. Um, and, and I, I hesitate to, to link mudblood with the N word because mm-hmm. this is a fictional world, <laughs> but I'm just trying to get to the, how, like, how bad is this word that Draco says? Right. The visceral know, reaction one might have. Is it, is it really, is it that for the magical community? Um, and if so, why does then Ron say it like three times <laughs> later in the chapter? So maybe it's not, yeah. maybe it's not <sighs> the same, the same level but that initial reaction of all of like Fred and George leaping at the Slytherins and Alicia shrieking. I can't say that. You know, that's a Alicia, Alicia, <laughs> I can't there either. There you go. Alicia oh, shrieking. Yeah, Natalie, that's going to be in every episode this season, oh, isn't God. it? Thank, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, and, but what's interesting about this is the Ron's awareness that like, like he says, you know, most wizards these days are half blood anyway. In as much like blood purity just is not even a thing. It's made up. Right, um, like like race. Yeah, we could. Yeah, we could yeah, draw we could, a longer parallel. We could parallel do another. There. There's a huge parallel but, here, right? You know, we if we hadn't married muggles, we'd have died out. Um, mm-hmm. And so, keeping track of it, and and then having this this term of to be about people who are different, um, is kind of pointless. Um, but then we see the sort of exact opposite of that in the Filch section. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that we these chapters got paired together. That we find out that Filch is a squib, which isn't discussed in this book as being a slur, but um, in later books will be kind of used. Uh, I think it's when Voldemort's like grandpa calls his daughter a filthy squib mm-hmm. um, in later in the, in there book is six. A, this, it's freighted with it's, negativity yes, because it's sort of seen as a way of not having pure blood. If you produce a squib and it makes me sad to think about Filch's life. <laughs> I mean, he's mm-hmm. a pretty sad person anyway, but he's the only non, well, he's one of the only non-magic users in this castle full of magic and he's going to do all the cleaning it makes me wonder like what if he had gone off and you know gone to college what what kind of pathways of knowledge could be opened up if the not the non-magical but magic bred children mm. without breaking the statute of secrecy got a muggle education and blended the two it's kind of like the opposite of what muggle borns could do and i will plug again my favorite fan fiction the Arithmancer. 
has kind of a plot line about that, about exploring the, the intersection between the two and not just saying, you know, now that I'm a mag, you know, I'm a muggle born wizard, so I'm going to completely ignore the muggle world now. But what if there was more blending? And Phelps just makes me sad. Magical society must be sort of awful for folks who aren't perfect wizards. There's also a lot of cool foreshadowing in these chapters. Mm. How, um, Tell me. Uh, well, he starts to see Ginny's distress. Oh, yes. There's three um, times. I, I counted three yeah, times. Yeah, several times. Yeah. She's really concerned about this. Mm-hmm. The vanishing cabinet gets broken, which doesn't come back till book six. Which oh, is my gosh. Wild. I saw that. I wrote down, is it the one that ends up at Borgen and Burke's? <laughs> yes. That's awesome. It is. No, it's not. It's the pair of the one. It's the right. one that ends up in it's the room the, requirement. R- in the room requirement, right. Um, That's cool. It was mostly just those two things that I got really I like excited that. about. I like that. And the foreshadowing side. The death day bit, there's not a ton there. Um, oh, there's one, not really from a faith perspective at all, but this is where we get the date. Yeah, that, I noticed that. that. Everything, it is, everything is calculated off. Yeah, it's 1992. And that's how they figure out the date of the Potters. That's how they figure out Voldemort. That's how they figure, you know, everything is calculated off of this cake. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I, I noticed that that was like the first date because I knew that Harry Potter took place in the early 90s, but I didn't really know why. Yeah, just imagine the next year Space Jam comes out. Wow. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I think just, just calling out, you know, every once in a while, I mean, people will talk about J.K. Rowling's writing and how it's serviceable, but not like amazing. She's got mm-hmm. great stories, but you know, the writing itself, but every once in a while, she'll just throw in something that I think is great. And in this chapter, one the, the concept of one of the roomier dungeons I just think that's hilarious. It's so cozy sounding. It's I I can picture Nick kind of gliding through down there. Well, we'll we'll want one of the roomier dungeons in case the Wailing Widow from Kent needs to wants to come. Why is it that only Harry can hear the voice? Is that does that is that explained? Because I understand why he's the only one that can understand the voice. Oh, I think it sounds like hissing, like pipes. I'm picturing oh, so like, people can uh, can hear a sound, but they don't hissing. hear talking. Uh, okay. I, I think so. I can buy that. I can buy that. I, I do love. I mean, this is a great scene in the movies. In the in the book, in the movies, it gets tied to Lockhart's detention, but in, in the books, it's separated. But the utter randomness of being Harry Potter's friend. You really. I mean, he's a great guy. He's so empathetic and compassionate and sweet. But imagine you're getting out of detention. You're trying to find your friend, and he comes up to you wild-eyed and says that voice. Do you hear that voice? And then he stops and listens for a second. And then he runs away saying, I think it's going to kill someone. Can you imagine having that happen as a 12 year old to your friend? Yeah. So as, as Ron and Hermione. Yeah. yeah, A lot of respect for Ron and Hermione, particularly in this book and, and for sticking by him. And we also see this, the hints that people start to think he's the heir of Slytherin. And I just want to say as a Hufflepuff, I'm very disappointed in Justin Finch Fletchley's assumption that that is true it makes me very sad for my house ron does say that even in the wizarding world hearing voices that no one else can hear isn't mm. good which is why they don't tell any of the adults right but they're not um, they're not condemning him for that they're kind of just no, like this no. is our weird friend who hears voices yeah i think it's funny that professor bins tells them all about the chamber because they're all so interested mm-hmm. it's the first time in his career that students are actually paying attention yeah that makes me happy. That's another moment of J- of excellent J.K. Rowling writing at the end of like within five minutes, like the class had gone back to back its to usual its stup- stupor. stupor. It's also interesting that Professor Binns defines history as solid, believable, verifiable fact, mm. which is super not what history is. 
you know, That's <laughs> you think, a good okay, point. Who, who, where is, where are we getting this history from? Uh, you know, what, what's, whose stories are we telling? Yeah. That gets complicated later when you meet the goblins and they, I mean, they spend so many, so much of history of magic learning about these goblin, goblin rebellions. It's like a, one of the go-to JK Rowling's going to talk about history of magic and you learn, you know, the, the sort of Gryffindor was originally a, you know, goblin artifact. Um, and so it is very much, he's coming at it from the wizarding perspective, which is history written by the victors of the wand users. And I do think that it's, it is important to continue to call out the fact that the wizards are writing this history yeah. to talk about rebellious goblins. Mm-hmm. When we look at the the world that's being created here, book two is really where we start to see the cracks mm. in, do you remember, mm-hmm. you remember in the first book where you talked about Diagon Alley and how it's written with such this, these beautiful imagery mm-hmm. and, and like just how everything's so vibrant and life yeah. and alive. And that's Harry seeing it for the first time. Absolutely. And now in the second book, we're starting to see the cracks in that veneer yeah. and seeing the blood purity, um, the, I'm not sure the, what to the call blood. it, the um, discrimination against blood uh, for over blood purity. Mm-hmm or the prejudice over blood purity, I should sure. say. Um, prejudice over blood purity, the understanding of history from the victor's perspective, from the wizard's perspective. And we're just going to keep layering more and more problems onto mm-hmm. this until we finally meet Voldemort in the flesh, who ends up becoming the avatar for all of those, all of those issues. And, and tying in, I mean, later issues like house elves, learning that under his rule, house elves were treated even worse than they are now. He kind of, it all you're right, kind of all spirals into, into him as the epitome, as the embodiment of it. And it makes, I guess it makes sense to me if this whole world is new to this 11 year old in the first book that he would take it all, just take it all in and be excited and be grateful that he's not where he was at home. And that as he starts to acclimate to the world, as the world starts to become normal, he will question things and he still doesn't question them as much as we, the readers will. He's still delightfully oblivious about a lot of things, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's at least they're explored here so that we can reflect on them. And it it makes me wonder how that, uh, that, that idea affects us in the real world. Mm. When do we start waking up to the way that the systems of the world affect people who have a different experience, a different identity than we might? What does it look like to, be the one who's being called a mudblood versus the one who would never be called a mudblood. What does it look like to, uh, to then figure out how do I, what, is it, what does it look like to say, all right, now that I see the cracks in this veneer, mm-hmm. how do I then go about living in this world, challenging the, um, the systems that allow for prejudice over blood purity or, you know, add your, add your real world analog into that. And it's, it's really fascinating when, especially reading this as an adult and really seeing kind of the deep uh, underpinnings of the problems of the magical world and how JK Rowling only, only for a few chapters in the first book dwells on that, on the light and the, the possibility. And then we start to see all of the, the underbelly. Well, I think that's where reading fiction can be such a gift. I mean, think of it as a distraction from real life as an escape, but it can be a really great mirror to look at our own world. And, you know, reading things like Harry Potter or like the Hunger Games was one of those things for me where it was a safe place to see the natural consequences of things that exist in my own world and to explore them in a way that was a little safer than looking at 
at them in my own world and then to turn back around and say, okay, what, what do I see here? And what, what you reminded me of all the good work that's come out of the Harry Potter fan community who grew up reading these novels, who really took the themes of equality and justice to heart and formed incredible projects like the Harry Potter Alliance, the one where the one, I think they're the one who has the, the kind of tagline of like, because nobody deserves to stay in the closet, have to stay in the closet. Um, and so they've done great work around LGBTQ rights um, because they were born out of this desire to see people uh, flourish and be equal. And it's incredible to see the fan responses in that way of learning the lessons that Harry Potter will teach us and then take them into our own world and take them back and to tackle those systems that would take a person um, because, you know, would judge a person because of their quote unquote blood purity or their, because of the choices of their lives. All right. So what are we reading next time, Carrie? Next time on the Ready Christian Book Club, we'll be reading chapters 10, 11, and 12. That's The Rogue Bludger, The Dueling Club, and The Apologies Potion. We'll talk to you then. It sounded like you said Apology Potion. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, the one where you take someone else's body as your own, because that's weird. That's not weird at all. They should apologize. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians where Carrie promises to put lots and lots of Star Wars memes over the next couple of weeks. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas where I don't do a lot of memes or on my website wherethewind.com. Please check out my new fantasy novel, The Islands of Shattered Glass on Amazon. You can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Search your feelings. You know this to be true. Don't bury your feelings down deep. They do you credit and they are a path to the light side. Once you start down the dark path, repent and return to the Lord so it will not dominate your destiny. There is always someone who believes there is good in you and can redeem you. May his blessing and the blessing of the Father and the Holy Spirit rest upon you this day and always. Amen.